Hi there, my name is Tim Mackey, and I am hoping to choose and live out my allegiance to Jesus over tribe. Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? What do demonic powers have to do with politics, with the way our society is being tribalized? I honestly probably didn't have a great answer to that question until my conversation with Tim Mackey. If you don't know who Tim is, he is a co-founder of The Bible Project. You've probably seen many of their videos on YouTube. It is some of the best content out there on the Bible, but they don't talk much about these topics, about tribalism, about how our society is being fragmented, and how to think through politics from a spiritual lens. And so I was really excited to get Tim on the show, to hear him talk about exactly those things. And guess what? We are going to start with the powers of darkness. This is an interesting talk. You are going to enjoy it. Tim, it's so great having you on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, Patrick, it's good to be here virtually with you <laughs> and, and talking. It's the beauty of the internet. We get to talk across the country to one another. Uh, you know, I have been studying recently the book of Ephesians. Our whole church is going through it right now, actually. And there's one particular sentence from the Apostle Paul that has really stuck out to me. It's in Ephesians 4, and he says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And I think why it strikes me personally is because the church in the United States in particular seems more fragmented than it's ever been before. And so I want to start there and maybe just ask from your perspective, I mean, you're in a different part of the country in a very different place, even probably politically than where we live and every geography has its own particular politics. But what do you think is fragmenting the the American church today? Mm. You know, maybe before I do that, I'm not trying to evade, but before uh, that line <laughs> from the beginning of Ephesians, what we call chapter four, but from that letter, you know, the unity of the Messiah's people is like the major drumbeat unifying every part of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And in a way, the little line that you quoted from early in chapter four, it's condensing a theme that is well and thoroughly developed in the earlier parts of the letter and then in what flows from it. So the reason why that's worth noting is because from Paul the Apostle's point of view, the unity of people across what he focuses on in the letter is mostly the ethnic gap between the original Jewish messianic followers of Jesus and then the non-Jewish. But then also he focuses on gender, power relations and husband and wife, socioeconomic in ancient context with slave and master, children and parents. And so these are all, you know, relationships 
that were fraught with complexity <laughs> uh, <laughs> as they are today. And for Paul, the unity of God's people across those lines isn't just an implication of like who Jesus was or his teachings. For him, it's what he says in chapter three is the unity of God's people across those lines is the way that it embodies and communicates the wisdom of God to the powers. In other words, the unity is not like a nice addition. It's, you know, like there's the good news about Jesus and you as an individual, and then what you do with the church. Well, that's cool. You know, for him, it's like the thing. The unity of the people is the thing. So I'm just trying to turn up the stakes uh, on your question. <laughs> no, no, you're not evading at all. In fact, I want to lean in on what you just said for a second. You just said a second ago that it's kind of the proof of God's power of what he's doing on earth as in heaven. That's how Paul thinks about it. The powers and principalities. So how is it the proof? In what manner does this prove something? Yeah, yeah. So Paul lives within a story, and that story is the story that's within our scriptures, though it actually takes some work for especially modern Westerners to really learn to inhabit that story because it's so different mm. than how most of us see the world. Certainly different than how I was raised to see the world. But Paul has this idea that comes from his scriptures, what Christians call the Old Testament, that reality is an overlap of what we could call heaven and earth, and that the realities that you and I perceive with our senses is a very important part of reality, but it is only one dimension, or I guess in our case, four dimensions, right? <laughs> uh, are, are we getting an explanation here on the 4D reality that you just said? <laughs> so the biblical authors just take for granted that there are more dimensions than the four that our senses can. And it turns out that mathematicians have known this for a long time too, mm -hmm. but that's another thing. And that there are powers at work in partnership with reality as we can sense and experience it that influence the way things go in the world. Mm. And that those unseen influences are very much the engine behind the national, ethnic, socioeconomic structures that we inhabit. And this is what Paul calls the powers, the principalities and powers. It's a well-known theme in his letters, but he didn't make it up. He got it out of what for him were the Hebrew scriptures. So in Paul's mind, in his cultural environment, Rome, was a goddess. Her name was Roma. <laughs> the nation was a goddess. In other words, the nation was a corporate unified deity, a goddess who embodied the way that Rome, both the values and the story, it was a deity. And it was a deity for which the Roman people sacrificed their lives and gave their lives in the name of the goddess Roma. And so that's just one example. When Paul says the unity of the Messiah's people proclaims to the powers that there is a Lord over them, namely the risen Jesus Messiah. What he's talking about is house communities gathering all around Ephesus that are made up of like a Roman slave owner, but also maybe a Greek or Macedonian slave and some maybe some families like a merchant. There's some Messianic Jews, maybe some Jews who don't know what they think about Jesus Messiah, but there's also some Arabs in there and all these different groups. And for all of them to be discovering the love of God through the story of Jesus, eating meals together at the same table, giving their money to support each other when each of them has a need, and praying in the name of Jesus together, worshiping Jesus, and giving their allegiance to him. For Paul, that communicates a message <laughs> to the powers, that the powers that be don't get to define who you and I are to each other anymore across those lines. I think that's what Paul means. He's talking about actual house churches in his day gathered 
of people who would normally outside that house be stratified and divided up into tribes and groups. And in Paul's mind, that way of organizing the world is done with in the community of God's people. And that's his main burden to communicate in the letter. <laughs> like that's what the letter to the Ephesians chapters one through three is about. And then chapter four is a pivot where he says, therefore, it's not just like, hey, be unified because you should be nice. It's like, <laughs> no, being unified is the way that we show the world who Jesus was and that he's the Lord of all the nations and Lord of all our economies and Lord of all people groups and that kind of thing. So anyway, um, we, we could talk more about that, but that's... No, let's talk more about that. I'm interested, but let me make sure I'm tracking with you. So what you're saying is in Paul's vision, conception of reality, there are spiritual beings which are behind our reality, if you will. And I want to get into this in just a second, because I realize for a lot of listeners, this is going to start sounding really unsophisticated. Like, okay, we're having a weird conversation today, aren't we? Like, this is the campfire conversation at Bible camp where people tell their demon stories, and that's not what we're doing. But and I want to get back to that in just a second. But if I'm hearing you correctly, it's that, yes, they understood what unified Rome, for example, as a goddess, as a divine being, and perhaps what unified all of these different groups as being divine powers, which unified those separate groups. And by bringing those groups together was a way of saying to those powers, no, you aren't in control of any of these people who fall into your various tribes, into your various allegiances. They have a higher allegiance, which is unifying them and which transcends your authority. And so it's a way of saying to Roma, you aren't chief, you aren't in charge, there's someone else in charge here right now, and that's Jesus. And you can tell because those people shouldn't be cavorting about <laughs> with the slaves. They shouldn't be cavorting about with the Gentiles or the Jews or whoever else they shouldn't be around. That's right. So maybe two parables or word pictures here. So one of them would be for that last point you were just making. So imagine a bunch of NBA players get so fed up with the league and how the teams are organized that like there's this upstart league that just begins on the side and they have a new coach and people begin to play in addition for this other team on the side. And you have people from like rival teams, but now they're joining this alternate league and they're playing together and they're practicing together. They're eating together. And when they go back out on the court and NBA, their relationships to each other are defined by the powers that be over the NBA. But when they go on Wednesday nights and join the alternate league, who they are to each other in the NBA, it's completely irrelevant. And what they want to do is actually turn this Wednesday night league into the real game. <laughs> like that, that's essentially how Paul imagines the long awaited deliverer of the people of Israel, who Paul and lots of early Jewish followers of Jesus believe that's who Jesus was, believe that he through his suffering and death for the failures of his own people and for the nations was an act of God's own suffering love to take the train wreck of human history and the way we divide ourselves up into categories and then kill and oppress each other, that all of that death and isolation and pain was channeled into one representative death of Jesus on the cross and that the resurrection of Jesus was the triumph of God's love and the launch of a new league. <laughs> and so to join the Wednesday night league and Paul's dream for these house churches was that who they were to each other on Wednesday nights would begin to change them in such a way that they would actually go back into the NBA and start to just say, you know, why are we rivals anyway? 
Like we serve the same coach on Wednesday nights. So like maybe this whole system is designed in a way that's just hopelessly corrupt. And maybe we just need to learn to be on a different team together. So that's one parable. The other parable is I get it. And I similarly have a difficult time embracing this multidimensional reality of invisible powers or spiritual powers. But I would submit that the world that we inhabit in the modern West, we are so in the legacy of the ancient Roman empire. When I went to go do my PhD studies in the University of Madison, Wisconsin, I had a Jewish studies department there where I studied Hebrew Bible. And also the big state university is in the same downtown as the state capital of Wisconsin. I grew up in Portland, Oregon. The state capital is like an hour south. And I'd gone like for a school field trip or something. But in Madison, it was like down the street. And so I would regularly walk through the capital because sometimes it was shorter to walk through it than around it to go somewhere. Your capital shortcut. <laughs> yeah, totally. And so I'll never forget the day I looked up in the rotunda, you know, the big central area. And I saw facing the four points of the compass, like these state values, like liberty, justice. I forget what the other two were, but I remember <laughs> liberty and justice. <laughs> you can fill it in with whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, right. But they weren't spelled in English. They were spelled in Latin. And the language of ancient Rome. And each of the four statues, plaques had a human statue over it. And one day I was like, what's that about? And so I went and looked it up and it's like, this is in almost all U.S. state capitals. They're modernized forms of ancient Greek gods. <laughs> Are you making me think of in the U.S., I mean, in our national capital, there's this yes, painting yeah. in the rotunda of George Washington. It's called the Apotheosis of Washington, which is a oh, old word for when a human becomes a divine being. So like Caesar dies and then he becomes a divine being. And he's there ruling over heaven on the clouds with justice and virtue and all these other figures alongside him. It's the exact same thing. The only difference between us and the people of Paul the Apostle's day is that we don't attribute a personal, individual personality to those. What we call them today are ideals or ideologies, depending <laughs> on your point of view. But very much these control our imaginations. They structure the built environment of our neighborhoods, of our cities, and of our lives and our calendars and our budgets and bank accounts. They structure our lives. So that's what Paul is referring to when he refers to the principalities and powers. It just so happens he believed that there was another layer of reality to these that moderns find very difficult to swallow. And I get that. I struggle with that too. So let's at least say what he's naming is the same reality that we live in today. And it may be that he's naive about thinking there's some personal invisible reality, or it could be that we have just an impoverished view of reality and that we have something to learn from the wisdom of the ancients, but that's maybe a whole other conversation. My point is that those are the powers that Paul says when a group of people get together who outside of the Jesus gathering ought to be put into their organized in their different tribes, whether because the social environment says so or because they've chosen it. And when people gather and actually make meaningful relationships and eat together and worship the one risen Jesus together, that communicates to the powers that their time is up. That's how Paul sees the world. And you can read his letters to the Corinthians, to the Roman churches, to the Colossian churches, and it's all the same. It's just all the same thing. I think it's because we don't know how to inhabit 
Paul's imagination <laughs> when we read these letters that we just kind of screen a lot of this stuff out. But for me, it's been a profound discovery about not just the ancient world, the Bible, but about giving me a new set of glasses to see my world so that when we come to the first question that you asked that we still haven't gotten to, <laughs> we'll get there, is that for me, all of this has been hugely influential for how I think about the fragmentation, cultural, social, or otherwise, uh, in my own environment. Before we get there, again, I'm just making sure I'm tracking with you. The powers and principalities that Paul spoke about in his time, it might have been Rome, it might have been your mercantile guild, it might have been a whole litany of things that functioned as the powers, the principalities, which were separating people across all of these different lines. In the modern world, if I'm tracking with you, you're saying that ideals, ideologies function in the same manner. They are the powers and the principalities. Is that what you're saying? You're saying something slightly different. I'm just trying to track oh, with it. Ideologies don't mean much unless there is an institutional reality to them. That's kind of what I wanted to get at. There seems to be a difference between, uh, let's say, consumerism, which is a kind of ideology, but I suppose there are institutions that are a part of that, you know, the shopping center or, you know, Amazon.com, maybe call those the institutions which express it. But you would say more so than the institutions, those are really the powers and principalities. Yeah, correct. The, the institutional embodiments of these ideals. And two things. One, just so, you know, I'm not like pulling this out of thin air. There's one really important section of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, what we call chapter two. And he has this line where he says, man, if the powers and principalities knew who they were executing when they crucified Jesus, they wouldn't have done it. If they would have known what the Jesus movement and the spirit of God was going to unleash because of what they did to him, they probably wouldn't. They had no clue what they were doing. That's what he says. If the powers hadn't crucified our Lord. And so there's a longstanding question about, well, what does he mean? Because he was executed through the orchestration of the Jewish high priest and the high council of the people called the Sanhedrin, and then a pushover governor, Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And so they're the ones who actually gave the orders. But Paul uses the same word to describe the human institutional figureheads as he does on other occasions to describe invisible spiritual powers. And so the question is, are these separate things in Paul's mind? Or maybe they're not different things. And I've come to the persuasion, and lots of people smarter than me who I've learned from, that for Paul, they're not different things. Are they not different because the persons and the organizations or the institutions are being animated by these powers? It seems like they are different. I mean, you've described them as different things, and I can understand them as different things. So what do you mean by saying, no, they're not different? Yeah, I just say what Paul is identifying when he says the powers that crucified our Lord in his first letter to Corinthians, he's referring to the Jewish temple leadership structures and that institution. And the temple was a long-standing historical, cultural institution. He's also referring to the institutional presence of an occupying military force of an empire far across the Mediterranean called the Roman Empire. Yeah. So that is what he's referring to. But it's also the case, again, from his heritage in the scriptures of Israel, what we call the Old Testament, that the biblical story depicts human institutions and powers as being the mirror side of a reality, a mm. dimension of reality made up of, and we have a difficult time with our language to know, but I mean, the English word demon doesn't get us there anymore, even though that is one of the biblical words used to describe 
these, but we just, you know, we think the stuff from the medieval European mythologies, you know, <laughs> little guys with pitchforks. Imps with horns. Yeah. And so for Paul, he's referring to what we would say are institutional structures, ideologies, and movements that have a real concrete manifestation in how our lives are organized. And so for me to start channeling my money, maybe less towards Amazon and more towards the benevolence fund of my local community of Jesus followers. For him, that's a shift of allegiance from the powers to the risen Jesus. And that's very clear. That's what he was all about. He was constantly on this fundraising mission for non-Jewish followers of Jesus to raise their money together and then send it to impoverished followers of Jesus who were Jewish in Jerusalem. And for him, this was an act of unity across the boundary lines of the powers. This isn't like just ethereal. Well, no, and it makes sense of the waking of the powers because, yeah, I mean, right. in the present, I promise you, if you stop spending money on Amazon, Amazon knows it. <laughs> they can tell you exactly <laughs> what you're spending less money on. They can tell you the day you stop spending less money, and they can tell uh, Google to start advertising more stuff to you so you can start spending that money with them again. Now, obviously, we're living in an era that allows that, but by giving my wealth to the Benevolence Fund at church, by sharing my wealth with you know, my fellow believers, I am saying to Amazon, you don't have first claim on not just my money, but my heart's allegiances, my heart's deepest desires. These people, they have the first claim, and that's why I'm willing to siphon off funds away from you over here to these people, again, who have a first claim, and they do because of our shared Messiah, our shared King, our shared allegiance to Him. I think that is exactly the way Paul is trying to retrain the imagination. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together, that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. So if I can bring this back <laughs> into the yeah, present, no. as I hear you speak, it's actually deeply disconcerting, I'm just to be totally transparent. Yeah. Because... For me too. If these ideals, <laughs> ideologies, these institutions are expressions of the powers and principalities that our unity is supposed to speak against or challenge, it seems like the exact opposite is happening inside of churches right now. I mean, I'm speaking totally from anecdotal experience, but I've got lots of friends who are pastors, people in churches all across the country. And it seems to me that those powers, those principalities, 
whether it's the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or their various expressions in different forms of conservative media, liberal media. I mean, it takes lots of different forms. They seem to be putting pressure on churches, on congregations to divide people more and more and more. And it seems as though they are speaking back, <laughs> right? If our goal was to challenge them, it almost seems like we're completely failing and actually we're being challenged as we're seeing more and more people leave their churches because they won't give their allegiance to whatever political or cultural ideology they're buying into. So again, this takes us back to our first question, but what do you see fragmenting us today? Yeah, no, ex- all the stuff you just named. I, Yep. yep (laughs) no and here's the thing is like it's not like i'm outside it we're in it you know every one of us just by waking up today putting on the clothes that we did consuming the food products you know we're in a built environment that has already been predetermined according to a long established set of cultural values determined by the powers and so it's not like any of us are outside of this. We're in it. Like we're focusing on Paul because you brought up Ephesians. And uh, you can tell this is an area where I have focused a lot of my own thought because I agree with you. I wake up every day, feel like I'm inhabiting a contradiction. What do you mean by that? Exactly what you just said. My money, my time, how my relationships are structured for me by the design of my city. It's not a blank canvas. It comes with a long history that my grandparents are the ones who moved to Portland. So I've grown up many generations in this city. And the way that, for example, people groups of different ethnic backgrounds, who inhabits where in my city of Portland has shifted over time. But it all has to do with these bigger issues that are the stuff of all the fragmentation right now. For me, it's become more perfectly obvious. And so for me, the contradiction is I'm a part of a local community of Jesus followers, and it's full of really different kinds of people. (laughs) And I'm with you. When we gather together and sing about the risen Jesus, how he's Lord of heaven and earth, and we say the Lord's Prayer, and we hear from the scriptures, and we write the whole thing. It feels like such a tiny little oasis (laughs) compared to the rest of my actual lived experience, which is almost entirely determined by the powers. And I'm with you. I agree. My heart is broken over this particular spasm of division within the community of Jesus' followers in our culture. But it's nothing new. That's what I can ask. I mean, do you think this is new? And I'm going to add a thought to that. I've talked to people who are older than me because I've always been suspicious of myself. You know, maybe this is just the first time I'm experiencing, you know, I'm the ripe old age of 34, so not much life experience to lean on. And as I've talked to older people, you know, people in their 70s or 80s, they've told me this does feel different to me. I mean, they lived through the 60s. They said, this feels different. What I'm seeing inside of the church, what I'm seeing inside of our culture, now it might just be the length of memory and, you know, what happened in the 60s doesn't hurt as much as, you know, what's happening in the present. But you say, yeah, this is nothing new. Why do you say that? Oh, well, okay. First, I should say, I'm not an American historian. Like, (laughs) I should not even be confused with somebody who might like to think they're one, right? So actually, I was skipping class skateboarding most of the years I should have been in high school in my American history class. So (laughs) I've tried to make up for it. But if I remember correctly, not within our grandparents or even great-grandparents, but great, 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 maybe add one or two more greats in there, there was a civil war. Within a range of greats. Yeah, within a range of greats, <laughs> there was a civil war in this country. And the dynamics were both very different, but strangely similar. 
and depends on one's interpretation of those events and our current events right now. But it's just good to acknowledge our country was at war within its own self. It's just far enough out of memory that I think for us, this feels like unprecedented. And that's just American history. It was through the Hebrew Bible that I've become interested in human history, you know, and kind of my interest range broader. But it's like, there's nothing new under the sun, as Ecclesiastes says it, like cultures at war within each other, empires fragmenting and dividing. The characters are different, circumstances are all slight variations, but it's the same melody that humans have been singing for as far back as we can tell. I think whenever I look at what's new, and I agree with you, and in some ways that question's a a great setup to say, no, nothing's new. And there's (laughs) so much consolation in knowing there have been those who've come before us who have faced similar challenges, and God's been faithful to them, God's guided them. And yet I want to know who those people are, because at least for me in this moment, it is easy to feel so tremendously lost. I don't know what the next step is. I don't know how to reclaim unity when it seems like our everyday reality is things fragmenting more and more. A buddy of mine, Michael Graham, wrote an article for Mere Orthodoxy recently talking about the fragmentation of the American church. It's a great article, but he divides up the church into six groups, but it's really four groups that he's talking about. And the two wings of this group, on one side, you've got people who've kind of syncretized their Christianity with the far right. And on the other wing, you got people who've kind of syncretized their Christianity with the far left. And in the middle, both those groups calling themselves Christians, it's just their kind of political cultural identity is what sits in the foreground, and their Christian identity is more in the background. But in the middle, he's got two other groups, and these two groups in the middle, for him, they do foreground the gospel. (laughs) They do foreground their faith. They want to be faithful to Jesus. But one of these groups is they don't want to talk about maybe the social, cultural justice issues that are facing our country. They want to focus our attention on, hey, let's study the Bible, let's pray, let's talk about spiritual things. Let's try to keep that conversation out because it divides people and it's corrosive and I don't want to have anything to do with it. And the other group of people says, no, I want the gospel to be front and center. And yet that's precisely why I care about social issues. That's precisely why I think we need to reclaim our prophetic voice and be a part of the larger cultural conversations, precisely why I care about justice. And I guess my question for you, and this is maybe even speaking more broadly for the Bible Project in general, is sometimes as I listen to your stuff, I get the sense that you guys have tried really hard to maybe avoid some of those more hot buttony issues that can divide people. And yet, as I listen to your theology, you sound a lot like the other group, the group that says, no, we do need to speak into this. And I'm just curious. I mean, how are you navigating that? How are you equipping Christians to see their Bible as preparing them for this precise cultural moment? That's a good question. Um, So I'm verbally processing real time here. In one sense, (laughs) I'm not sure that we are. And it's actually not our mission or goal to be. Our goal, our stated mission, we started saying this because it is actually how we talked about what we were doing, is we're trying to help people experience the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. And what we're trying to do is recover and help people learn a way of engaging and experiencing and reading the scriptures that might feel new, but is actually more ancient than most of the modern methods that we have adopted for reading these texts and engaging them. And as one does that, for example, the conversation we just had about the powers, all we're doing there is doing a really thorough meditation on Paul's actual language in the whole letter that he wrote and interpreting every single sentence or verse that could get taken and put on a coffee mug or on a little poster, reading the whole thing as a unified literary work. It's called a letter. And then asking, hmm, 
what's the bigger story and the cultural context that's the background of the letter and the bigger story that Paul sees himself inhabiting? Hmm? And then that leads to the conversation that we just had. And so for me, it inevitably leads you to put on a set of glasses that is the biblical story and start looking at your actual lived environment as an expression. Our lived environments have been designed in allegiance to the powers. And that is what Paul means. <laughs> so what we're trying to do is help people learn how to read these texts the way they're designed to be read. You're making the meal. And then the moment that people are going to then begin to eat the meal, realize like, oh, I could make this meal myself. And with the energy that I get from this meal, I should probably start doing a certain number of things based on where the story <laughs> is pointing me. And that's the moment we hand off. And we just say, that's the Holy Spirit's job. Because how can we know what a group of followers of Jesus in Indianapolis, what they need to do and how they need to respond versus a group of followers in Jesus in Philadelphia or Portland or San Diego? Like it's a different context. And so we're not trying to evade like the issues of our time, but I just have the sense that like the issues of anyone's time is just in constant flux. And what we're trying to do is connect ourselves to the story and to the person of Jesus, who we really believe transcends our time. And at the moment where I shift to a mode of offering my own commentary or observations on our cultural setting is the moment I take off my Bible project hat. And then I just put on my Tim Mackey hat. And because those two, especially in the toxic social media environment that we live in, are so fused, it's impossible for people to actually just say their personal views without implicating the uh, groups they're associated with. The entire organization, yeah. Yeah, I mostly, on the personal level, I've dropped out of all social media and I just don't talk about that stuff very much. <laughs> I'm sure your life has really been depleted by your lack of social media. I'm sure you're missing it every day. Yeah. You're wondering. Oh, I'm saying on a personal level, <laughs> on a personal level, because I'm with you. I'm terrified to enter a more public conversation arena not because I don't have thoughts on these things, but it's because there's almost no scenario where anything I might think or say won't implicate all of the wonderful people that I work with. And it's just such a hostile environment right now. So I'm not saying it's the right response. I'm just saying it has been my response up till now. I think what you're saying is fair on one level. Bible Project, you guys have a mission. You have a charter. You have a goal. And like we just said, your goal is to help people read the Bible as a unified story pointing to Jesus. You're trying to give them the tools to meditate on scripture, to understand scripture in its original context, to read it as a literary work. I mean, all these things that personally have benefited from tremendously. And I think there's nothing wrong with an organization saying, that's what we do. We don't do that thing over there. <laughs> you know, you, you don't have to do everything, right? You're also not producing iPhone holders, right? You literally can't do everything. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And so I think that's a fair response. If I can lean in, because I don't think you're trying to evade that at all. One of the things that I hear that I'm even wrestling with as a pastor is that Again, within the church, though, there still is this debate of how much should the church be weighing in on these cultural conversations? How much should they be invested in it? And sometimes the sense I get from people is, you know, Patrick, I wish that our church was just the Bible project. Like, I wish you would just give me the tools to read my Bible, a worship service, a small group, you know, and we can talk about spiritual things and we can enjoy the spiritual things together. But let's leave the kind of boots on the ground, how we live this out, how we engage in the cultural conversation, how we, you know, pursue justice, whatever else it is. Let's leave that at the table because it's too divisive. What would you say to, to someone in that case? I mean, should the church be a Bible project? No, I don't. And the reason I say no is because I can't imagine Paul 
or Jesus being okay with that. Like, look at the Sermon on the Mount. What else is the Sermon on the Mount except a manifesto for how people live together as a group of people embodying a set of values and allegiances that differ with their neighbors? In other words, I don't know what it would even mean to be a church community that isn't living out some set of allegiances to greater powers. Actually, the way to flip it would just be to say, but listen, if we don't explicitly talk about these things in our church community, where we actually live, we're not like remaining neutral. What we're just capitulating to is the powers that have already shaped our lived experience. And they're so woven into our lives, they're invisible to us. It's like you can't see the glass of the fishbowl that you're swimming in. But Jesus wants to shape the fishbowl. Okay, this parable is going to get out of hand. (laughs) (laughs) Extend the metaphor to its limits. (laughs) But you get what I'm saying. Like, In other words, it's the job of a local church, according to the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, that a community of believers interacts as a group in a new way. And you're saying this extends beyond just, because I can hear someone saying this, yeah, uh, so we're going to have a chaste sexual ethic, for example, or we're going to treat our, you know, small group member with kindness and we'll show up and give them a meal when they have a baby or someone's sick, right? And they say, that that's all great. So it's almost this kind of pietistic, like, yes, there's these moral things that I do, but that has nothing to do with anything broader than my individual actions and how I love and treat other people. W- would you press it beyond that? Well, um, where does that group of people gather? And so they probably gather in a building of some kind. Where is that building located? Who lives next to that building? Do the people who live next to know that there's a group of followers of Jesus gathering in that building? Um, Man, what if the people on either side of that represent some of these fragmented groups and they're like the people we don't talk to or associate with? Well, is there an obligation to like help them out if their fence is broken? And oh, but what if they're a part of that political tribe? but we're going to help them fix their fence because they're human. (laughs) What I'm saying is like our daily lives take place in environments that have already been determined for us by the powers. And I don't know what it means to be a human in my city, except to live by one of a small handful of stories. And the story of Jesus is constantly pushing me and my community of friends to notice my neighbors. And to like get to know them and hear their stories and then figure out what it means to relate to them because they don't follow Jesus. How do I relate to them according to a similar ethic by how I treat the people that gather in my building or house or whatever? In other words, American culture has been immersed in a denial of reality for many generations now that somehow we exist as individuals unto ourselves, individual liberty and so on, as there's actually real value to some of those unique contributions, I think, of American culture to human history. But in my mind, it's been so overemphasized that it makes invisible to us the fact that my fate and life is deeply connected to the people inhabiting the building next to mine. And that or how, if you're in the suburbs, the neighborhood that's farther away that has people who maybe have a different skin color than I have or living at a different socioeconomic level than I live in in my neighborhood. Yeah, it's a wonderful example. There's three houses up for sale on our street right now. And so a few years ago, a friend and I were learning about the history of real estate law in Portland. And there's very few people of color, that is people who aren't of a white ethnic makeup in our neighborhood, for example, 
And there is a history to that. It's written into the laws of the city of Portland that only really changed in the 60s and then actually weren't even really adhered to until the 70s, making it illegal to discriminate on the basis of ethnicity, whether or not you could buy a house in a certain part of town. Yes, you're talking about homeowners covenants and redlining. and That's not that long ago. It's a living memory. And it's a living legacy still today, except now it's very much to do with the nature of the real estate market and what kind of housing is available at what prices in what parts of the city. And so my point here is that all of a sudden we're talking about local housing policy and stuff that the city commissioner's right, office is, is talking about. But it affects who my neighbors are. And it makes it very difficult for me to have neighbors who I could get to know and begin to make a kind of connection that Paul dreamed of when he talks about the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. It makes it very difficult for me to meet any refugees, for example, or any you know second generation immigrants if the types of housing that's all available to them is in a certain category. You get what I'm saying here? No, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. <laughs> but I think the challenge is that in our cultural setting, there are many stories at work that want to reduce where people are able to afford to live into a narrative of individual responsibility and who works hard enough and so on. Until you sit down and you hear somebody's story, you can, but aside from all of that, if I live in a really homogenous neighborhood, it would make a natural person curious to be like, hmm, how am I ever gonna get to know somebody different than me and live out the teachings of Jesus? Well, you're even making me think about the New York Times did this study based on voting records of where liberals and conservatives lived. And they discovered that the vast majority of Americans live in neighborhoods, even counties and cities, that match their political persuasion. And so you can go in there, you can put in your address, and you can see how diverse, even ideologically, so we're not even talking about you know skin color or socioeconomics, we're just saying ideology. And again, most people literally live in a ideological bubble on top of a socioeconomic and ethnic bubble. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm not even offering commentary. I'm just trying to make observations about, and you are too, about the lived reality in our fleeting moment of living in early 21st century America. But man, our brothers and sisters who are over in the Ukraine right now, and so we're recording this in mid to late February, in Russia and Ukraine, there's something going down there. And our brothers and sisters are there on both sides of that border. We have brothers and sisters there. So they're dealing with a whole different set of issues over there, different than ours in this moment. And so what the spirit is going to be leading them to do about that border, <laughs> and right, that boundary line that the powers have determined is a really different thing than what we're talking about here right now. And so it will always be local and localized expressions of the work of God's spirit and leading the followers of Jesus. So back to the question of, I don't know how a local church could ever or would ever want to try and not be involved in its context, because it already is by its sheer existence already. Yeah, you're right. The Bible Project is not a local church, because we can't possibly ever do what a local church can do. Yeah. And you're obviously even an international organization. You just brought up a great point, which is it's hard to do that across national boundaries. It's easy for us to talk about our American context, because guess what? We live here. And, and even in America, I mean, incredibly diverse context, depending on the state or place that you're at. But one of the things that I really appreciate about what you're saying is 
the church's job is to call together a people who not only are transgressing the boundaries that society sets to say, those aren't our boundaries, those aren't our lines, but beyond that, to collectively live out a kingdom ethic, show to the world, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And when we talk about political tribalism, I think a lot of times people start thinking of, you know, red versus blue and which side's going to win in this battle. And that's the nature of politics is just which party's in charge. And what you're saying presses back against that, but it says, look, politics isn't about the left and the right and who's going to win this battle. Politics is most fundamentally about how we do life together. It's most fundamentally about how we're going to, you know, organize our society. How are we going to organize our money? How are we going to deal with our enemies? How do we think about violence? How do we manage, you know, marriage and family and social structures? You know, all of these different things, there is a kingdom Christian ethic that has to be articulated in our moment, and it seems to me that you're saying that's actually the church's job is to figure out how do we faithfully articulate this here and now. Well, that is what I'm saying, but who cares what I say? That is what I'm saying Jesus and Paul and the apostles are trying to tell us as they spoke to their communities and their settings. But yeah, let us not forget that our word political comes to us not through Latin, but through Greek. It's a Greek word spelled with English letters that comes from two nouns, related nouns. The first one is the polis, which was the Greek word for a city. So the way that a city organizes its life together, and then a word that Paul uses in his letter to the Philippians, polituma, it's the line, our citizenship is in heaven. But your polituma is the most important determiner of one's identity in relationship to your neighbors. So our polituma, our political identity, would be a great translation like a faithful English translation in current modern English, our political identity is in the skies. And by which he does not mean where will you go after you die? Because he instantly goes on to say, and from the skies, we are awaiting a savior who will bring his kingdom and reign here. And you said your political identity, I'm not even going to try to say the foreign words, your political identity is determined by how you treat your neighbor. Well, I wouldn't say it's determined, it's expressed. One's political identity will determine the story one thinks one is inhabiting. And then the value set that comes out of that story, yeah, will shape how I perceive people who are fundamentally different. And for us, Jesus is the one who's supposed to shape that political identity. Well, what else has Jesus tried to do in the Sermon on the Mount except <laughs> like shape our imaginations for how we think about the other human beings that we live around, especially the ones that we don't like? It's so mind-blowing to think about people inside of churches and who is shaping their political identity. I mean, most fundamentally, their orientation towards their neighbors, how they think about how we should treat others, love others. And is it really Jesus? Okay, so one historian, Tom Holland, who contributed a really significant work called Dominion a few years ago. It's a big behemoth tome. I listened to it and then got so hooked I was listening and reading at the same time. But here is one thing that is unique about American culture is it is a culture born out of Europe and a cultural, philosophical, political, economic set of movements in Europe that were brewing in the 1600s, 1700s. Gosh, I learned so much by reading Tom <laughs> But even on the rotunda of the Capitol, like all of these ideals, you know, the justice and liberty and so on, this is all language adopted from French philosophers who were the architects of the French Revolution. <laughs> which didn't go so well. Yeah. And actually, it's really fascinating, the parallelism between the American and French revolutions and why one, you know, really gained steam and the other did not. It's a whole, and again, 
don't mistake me for someone who even thinks that they're a European historian now. What I took away from that was that America is architected as a culture, structured with a story that is like a parody or an image of the biblical story, which is a founding set of ideals that just gave everybody the perfect setup and then long, slow degradation, and then through a series of fits and starts, a decreation or some kind of fall, and then a progression towards the set of ideals. So America's on this trajectory, and it's woven right into the ideals woven into the heart of the American Constitution. What just Holland observes is that essentially it's a story architected along the lines of the biblical narrative, but it's not a story that in any way is disciplined to be challenged by Jesus. What it's challenged by is the most general, vague, theistic idea of God and that humans are sacred. But like how you actually treat humans who are different than you, you know, like what you do with your money, like what actually Jesus said, none of that's baked in. (laughs) Well, and the ideals upon which this nation was built are remarkably pliable. And here's the thing is they're beautiful ideals. Yes. They are so woven into the heart of the biblical story that humans are sacred images of God, you know? And this is a novelty in human history to elevate that ideal to be the most fundamental organizing principle, whether or not this is a country that's always lit up that ideal, that's another thing, but that's a beautiful ideal. So we're on square ground with Sermon on the Mount because that's Jesus' fundamental view of human beings as well. But then Jesus goes on to say all of this other stuff that is very much not baked into the foundation story of our country, (laughs) especially, especially what he had to say about money. I mean, nobody can walk away from Jesus' teachings about money. I think to take it honestly and to say, oh yeah, he would be like really comfortable inhabiting Portland in the 21st century. The best thing to do when you're reading what Jesus says about money is plug your ears and pretend like you didn't read it. I mean, that's the only conscientious thing. It's so true. I mean, it's profoundly true. Yes. The reason why that's significant is we live in a culture where followers of Jesus have, up till the early 1900s, been enfranchised. That has had their cultural and general religious ideals woven into the fabric of our powerful institutions as a culture. There have been times like that. There's been Christian empires in the past when Constantine converted right to Christianity in the 300s. The Roman emperor became a Christian. And so the church has been enfranchised before. And incidentally, those have not been the most healthy moments in church history. And so it seems to me what we're experiencing is a moment when there's many Americas right now, and one of them is much more like post-Constantine America and divided up into neighborhoods, like you said. And then there's another America emerging that's much more like Ephesus that Paul was writing to, where the biblical story and the general religious ideals kind of inspired by the Bible are not the story anymore. And that's certainly my upbringing and my culture environment here in Portland. And there you go. Those two strands exist within our culture. And sadly, it seems, and I'm not an expert, but it seems like a large majority of churches across many different denominations and traditions, and even within strands of Catholic tradition, have just found it nearly impossible to evade that cultural divide and have, in fact, adopted those cultural divides into the community of Jesus. And I think it's something... It's become a church growth strategy. Yeah, Paul, I think would be deeply disturbed, deeply disturbed. And it's disturbing to me too, but then I'm all the way back to my thing of like, but it's not like I'm outside observer of it. Like (laughs) I'm a participant 
of the multi-Americas and the church and trapped in the environment. My whole life is trapped in this environment, except these few times that I am with followers of Jesus and you get tastes. You get little tastes and experiences of unity in the bond of the spirit across one of those lines. And you're like, can I have this everywhere? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. But there you go. Yeah. I think that was beautifully and well said. I think the church is in America in many ways culturally captive to these various political movements. And that's a great way of framing it. Half of it's kind of the Constantinian version of Christianity. The other one's the Greco-Roman, you know, religious pluralism. We can see both these realities very clearly. Maybe just as a last question, as I think about people who they want what you just said. They want the kingdom of God, not just on Sunday morning or in the small group, but outside of it. And yet they find that these countervailing pressures outside of them, these powers that are constantly speaking to them, are often winning the battle. And to be frank, I think part of that's precisely because of our biblical illiteracy, and that's one reason I'm thankful for the Bible Project. I mean, in the absence of actual biblical literacy, letting this be the story that's shaping your life and your reality— it's going to be Fox News or CNN or your Twitter feed or whatever. Trust me, there's plenty of other people who want to take that role and that responsibility in your life. And as we've done this podcast, one of the most common responses I've gotten from people is they've started to say, you know what, I've begun to see like actually my deepest allegiance is not to a political tribe or to this cultural group. I don't want that to be my deepest allegiance anymore. Instead, I really do want to give Jesus my allegiance. I do want to serve his kingdom. I do want my values and my ideals to become realigned with his vision, his value, his ideals. And then they say, so what do I do next? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what should I read in the Bible? Or do you have a book for me? Like, how do I do this? And oh, man. I find myself struggling. You know, I often send them your justice video, but that's not <laughs> enough. And so I'm curious, how would you answer that question? Hmm. Well, yeah, it's a really good question. The problems exist on many levels, and so a response exists on many levels. If it's a level of understanding of the shape of my imagination and what world I think I'm living in and what world I want to live in, and if it's about understanding, then yeah, uh, there's probably some reading, some communities and conversations and dialogue partners that I need to cultivate in my life that maybe I don't have right now. And so we are trying to provide one such resource through the Bio Project. And there's lots of others too, but let's not pretend that like we're brains on a stick. Exactly. It's our whole lived environment is already given over in allegiance to the powers. And so it's going to be impossible for me to retrain my imagination by myself. What I need is the lived experience of other people who are both like me and unlike me. And then together we discover in our local setting what it's going to mean for us to live with a new set of allegiances. And in theory, that's what Paul calls the ecclesia in Greek, translated as church in our English translations. And man, I'm not a philosophy of ministry nerd and big church, small church, right? Better or worse, whatever. Whatever the form, uh, it's impossible for me, Tim Mackey, to follow Jesus faithfully if I'm not connected into the lives of some number of other people who are trying to do the same thing, who are like me or unlike me. It won't be possible for me. <laughs> That's so true. And what you said was so beautiful. That in pursuit of this unity that is speaking the truth about Jesus to the powers, we have to be the ones who cross the lines, build relationships, and then together, arm in arm with those people who are different than us, we'll figure out <laughs> what it looks like to realign our allegiances. And, you know, I think anybody listening is that's what we want. I mean, that's what we long for. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so maybe that is not someone's current experience of their church community. I guarantee 
there are at least a few other people in your church community who are hungry for that kind of thing. So become an ecclesia within your ecclesia, you know? And uh, there's so many expressions that it can take, but we're not alone in this. And here, I'll just speak very personally. You know, the COVID isolation era coincided with my family discerning that we needed to make a transition to a new church community for our family. And so COVID caught us in the transition and we were just floating, like with a network of two other families who also had kids the same age. And that was our community, you know, for that isolation period in Oregon. They went really hard on the isolated social practices and so on, not to get political. (laughs) (laughs) Everything's political these days, Tim. You don't have a hope. (laughs) But I don't even have the right parable. What a drink of fresh water or a breath of fresh air it has been for my family to re-engage with a local community of Jesus followers. It's full of people who, many of whom are like me, many of whom are not like me at all. And it's regularly uncomfortable. (laughs) I find myself like I both want to be a part of this and I kind of don't. And I love it because it's exactly what I need. And it's something that even as a little family with my wife and two little boys and two other families, even that, it was very difficult to follow Jesus. I felt like I felt Jesus and followed Jesus in theory in that period of my life. And I just know that it's impossible for me to truly give my allegiance to Jesus if I'm not connected to a group of people that somehow kind of doing I think what Paul dreamed of in his letter to the Ephesians. So that's just where I'm at. And if it resonates, sounds like it resonates also with where you're at. And I think probably a lot of other people too. And Lord have mercy upon us. (laughs) Help us build our ecclesias inside of ecclesias. Tim, thank you so much for being on the show. But before you go, would you just mind praying for our audience, for the church that we would experience this unity? Yep. Okay. Yeah, I would be happy to do that. Yeah, I'm going to use words not my own, actually. Um, I love it. (laughs) I'm just going to pray the blessing of Aaron. Um, It's in the Torah from Numbers chapter 6, because it says better what I could hope to say anyway. (laughs) And I'll pray it in Hebrew first before I say it in English. Yeah. Yair Adonai Panavelecha Vichunecha Yisa Adonai Panavelecha Vyasemlecha Shalom May the Lord bless you and may he keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. May he show you his favor. May the Lord lift his face towards you and may he give us all uh, shalom, a taste of the wholeness and of the presence of God's kingdom. Uh, We hope and pray and ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being with us today, Tim. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.